Good afternoon, my friends and followers. Welcome to Law and the Life Live. I'm your lawyer, Patrick McGeehan, and I am your best friend at your worst time. This week's edition of Law and the Life Live was totally messed up. I did it on Wednesday. I did it live on several platforms. We were having a storm in the area, so it was just a mess. The audio was terrible, so I redid it today, and I got a bunch of questions about the people who did see it live about the case, and there was a lot of interest in the case, so I wanted to do the case justice and do it for you now. Here, this is another this is another murder case that was sent to me a couple weeks ago by a follower out of Orlando. Uh, if you missed it like three weeks ago, I did a suitcase murder case. I'll put the card up here or up here, somewhere up here. I'll put the card to that. That was the case where somebody was killed with a suitcase. Very interesting case, and it has some similarities to this particular case. Like I said, this is a murder case out of Orlando. It's a brand new case as of April of this year, March and April of this year. The death occurred on March 28th. The main defendant was in custody April 26th, charged with murder, and two decode defendants were in custody uh, shortly before that. So let's get to it. Let me bring up some pictures here because we have pictures in this particular case. I'm not real familiar with Orlando, so I'm going to take you there via Google. So here we have the Uptown Place Apartments where the victim, Garland Ross, black male, was killed presumably on March 28th of 2020. It occurred in apartment 105, which I'm assuming is on the first floor somewhere. It's a fairly large complex. Let me get to the other. Let me show you an overview of it. This is the apartment complex here. It's got a pool. This little entrance looking corridor thing is not actually the entrance. The entrance is down here where this canopy is. There looks to be a service door right there, maybe right there and right there. Maybe that's the end of the hallway where the apartment comes in, where the apartments are lined up or whatever but the entrance is actually down the street a little bit. Right here, the Uptown Place Apartments. Looks fairly fancy. And the entrance to the parking garage is down Mark Street. Right here. This is the, I guess you'd call it the front entrance. There's street level parking, there's some curbside parking, and then the parking garage with the entrance here and in the backside. And that becomes important later in the case. So let's go back to, here's the parking garage. Okay, so we have three characters involved in this case. We have the main character who is the defendant, and we have two co-defendants. So let's pull these characters up and introduce you to them. All right, this is the booking photo. Well, here, let me get both of them up here. All right, this is our main character. 
This is James Allen White, white male. He just turned 40 years old on March 30th. This is the same guy. This is his booking photo from 2019. This is his booking photo for this arrest here. So they're about a year apart and look at the difference. Look at the difference drugs make and their drugs play an important part in this case. So this is our main guy. This is James Allen White. He is the killer. This is a strangulation murder. And you know, all murders are violent, but strangulation murders are particularly violent because you're there standing over the person, just watching and feeling the last bit of life just get sucked right out of them. So this is our main guy. And let me get you to the co-defendants. These are our co-defendants. This is Julie Ferber, 46, and this is Timothy Crandall, age 24. So we have Jimmy, Timmy, and Julie involved in this particular case. It doesn't appear that Julie and Tim are related or involved in the actual murder that seems to be carried out by James solely. So let me get you back to back over here. The uptown place. Now the interesting thing I found when I was doing the background on this case is that in 2015, there was another murder here at the same apartment complex in apartment 345. And it was another strangulation murder. And what happened in that case was a security guard employed by the complex used a hacksaw and hacksawed a deadbolt lock of apartment 345 where a 23 year old white female lived. He went inside at night after he hacksawed the deadbolt, raped her and strangled her to death and killed her. And I thought that was really interesting that they would have two strangulation murders within just a few years apart. So I may look at that case next. So let me take you to the beginning of this case. The beginning of this case starts on April 1st, where the Orange County Sheriff's Office is flagged down by a homeless man. Bring you over here. A sheriff's deputy is flagged down by a homeless man in the 8200 block of Lake Underhill Road. Apparently, back in these woods somewhere, there's a homeless camp. And all three of the defendants in this case seem to be homeless as per the police reports in the case. So these two homeless guys flag down this sheriff's deputy and tell, them about, tell him about a suspicious suitcase that's in the woods near their camp. I don't know the whole extent of that conversation, why they thought it was suspicious, I'm sorry, why they thought it was suspicious other than being a suitcase in the woods. I don't know if they could smell the decomposing body because when a body decomposes, it gets real stinky and it's the worst smell. A decomp is the worst smell you've ever smelled in your life. So I don't know if, they, if there was blood on it or you know they, they smelled the decomposing body or it was just suspicious because there was a suitcase in the woods. So anyhow, the deputy calls for backup. His backup gets there. The two guys lead the deputies to the suitcase. All right, so the deputy calls for backup. His backup gets there. The two deputies 
go into the woods with the two homeless guys who direct them to the suitcase. They open up the suitcase and inside the suitcase is a black male. He's partially decomposed, no identification, and but he has a real um, distinctive scar. It doesn't say where, but he has a distinctive scar somewhere. So they know they got a sheriff's office knows they have a murder case on their hands. Now, where they found them on Lake Underhill Road is outside the city limits of the city of Orlando. So that's why the sheriff's office is involved. So the sheriff's office does their scene processing. They start investigating. And then on the next day, on April 2nd, the victim's brother and sister report him missing from the Uptown Place Apartments to the city police, to the Orlando police. So the Orlando police get with the sheriff's office, put two and two together. Although they don't have a positive identification on the victim yet, they assume that this is the same person. And here we go with the murder investigation. And this is a great investigation because there's a lot of details that are available that show the effort and all the work that these guys put into this investigation. So they spend a couple days processing the victim's apartment, looking for anything that may be clues or evidence, taking fingerprints off of everything. The, when the brother and sister report them missing, uh, apparently they show a photo and they make mention of the scar and that's the way they're able to link the victim to this missing person. Although it's a few days later before they get actual confirmation from fingerprint identification that the victim is in fact Garland Ross. Now I looked up the victim and tried to do some research on him. I found the Garland Ross in Orlando on Facebook. He's a black male. I don't know if it's the same one or not, but I couldn't positively confirm that that was the victim. So I'm not gonna present any photos of the victims. We'll just stick with Jimmy, Timmy, and Julie. So on March 3rd, I'm sorry, on April 3rd, the Orlando police take over the investigation because they determined that the homicide occurred in apartment 105 at the Uptown Place Apartments. So the police department, the Orlando Police Department is now the lead investigative agency on this particular case. So the detectives are assigned to it. On March 3rd, they get video surveillance footage from the complex and the parking garage and they start going through it. And I'm sure it was hours and hours of video footage. And they see initially a white male who, we later, who they later identify as James. And then later on, they see a white female and another white male who they identify subsequently as Julie and Tim. But on March 3rd, when they're looking at the video, back on March 30th, the video from March 30th, around 6 p.m., they see a white male with an umbrella. He's not readily identifiable, but he moves the position of one of the surveillance cameras that goes from the apartment complex to the parking garage. Now, he doesn't move it enough to obstruct the view of it. He just bumps it with the umbrella, and I don't know what he was trying to do. Maybe he couldn't move it, or he thought he moved it enough. But anyway, he didn't move it far enough. A little bit later on March 3rd, they see these people pull a suitcase out of the 
apartment complex and into the garage and load it into the car. So they're also, not only do they have this video footage, they also get the victim's key fob information, his little clicky thing that he uses to get into the door. This victim has two of them. So they get all that information of when it was used. They get a court order for the victim's cell phone records and they get all of his banking records. So that's, you know, that gives you an idea of the, you know, they do this really quick, the serious nature of these events and how they're able to put these cases together. So on March 4th, they start going over and comparing the surveillance video, the key fob information, the banking information, and they start getting surveillance video from other places. So other places. So when they go through the surveillance video, they come up with this. They come up with these screenshots. This is James. See these tattoos on his arms? That'll play a role later. This is Julie. See this bag that Julie's carrying? And this is a bottle of perfume. That'll be important later. Those are important clues. And this is Tim, happy-go-lucky Tim. Anyway, three very good surveillance videos. I mean, I'm sure homicide detectives wish they had this quality of pictures and identification and videos in all their cases. It's, it's amazing how, how good it is. So they get, they get this and identify these, as, these guys as a player, this guy coming in and out using the key fob, these two later coming in and out using the victim's key fob. Then they put out a press release that includes those photos. So we go over to the press release. Let me find my press release here. I got it up on screen, but I can't seem to find it in the pictures. Here we go. They do a press release. They use the surveillance videos, and then this picture, this is the victim's vehicle. They get this picture from an ATM, and you see the the tattoos on James's arm. Pretty distinctive, clear face, very good pictures. And that becomes important later when they, uh, when they further identify him in the video. So up to this point, they don't know who these three people are. They have pictures of them, but they have no idea what their identity is. So they put together a timeline in this particular case. So on March 28th, at 11.30 a.m., Garland Ross leaves his apartment. At little after 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he returns with a white male who they later identify as James. At 4 o'clock, they both leave the apartment and go to Bank of America where they withdraw, where Garland withdraws 40 bucks at 6.10 a.m. So they, they're already going out pulling the surveillance videos from these ATMs. At 4.31, they return to the apartment, both Garland and James. At 7.30 that night, both exit 
the apartment complex. They see him going into the parking garage. They get in the victim's silver BMW, and they drive to a Bank of America, and they withdraw another $200. And like I said, they had a court order for all the cell phone records and the, the banking records and everything. So they already have them. They go through the cell phone records, and the last call going in and out of Garland's cell phone was on March 28th at 8.20 p.m. And it pings in the area of Colonial and Foresight Road, about three and a half miles from the apartment. And not very far from where the suitcase was found. Okay, so going back to the 28th, at 8.39, both James and Garland returned to the apartment complex. So at 8.39 on March 28th, 2020, Garland and James go back to the apartment complex. That is the last time that Garland, the victim's ever seen again. They continue to go through the surveillance videos and it, on March 29th at 5.20 a.m., because you know, dopers are up early in the morning, of course. Anyway, at 5.20 a.m., James leaves the victim's apartment. He gets in the BMW, he's wearing, but this time he's in a disguise. He's wearing a wig, a long-haired wig, a hat, and a surgical mask over his face. So they can't identify him at this time. At 5.30, he arrives at the Bank of America at Fashion Square Mall, uses the victim's card, he's by himself, withdraws $200. He returns to the apartment complex at 5.52 a.m. At 7.27 a.m., James, without the wig, leaves again, this time in the victim's black caddy Escalade. He goes back to the ATM at Fashion Square Mall, withdraws another hundred bucks. Hour and a half later, hour and 45 minutes later at 9.16, he goes to another ATM and withdraws $200 more. And that's where they get this surveillance video, this surveillance screenshot. Now they got a clear picture. Before they could see pictures of the tattoos and tell he had tattoos, but they couldn't get a clear enough picture to identify him, any of them. So this time they get a pretty clear picture of the tattoos on his arm and they use that to later further identify him. At 10.15, James goes back to the apartment in the Escalade, parks it in the garage. At 1.46 p.m., James leaves again, this time in the BMW. He goes and gets a hundred bucks out of an ATM again. He comes back to the apartment at 6.02, the victim's apartment at 6.02 PM. He goes, what does he do? I have extensive notes. The, the reports on this were brutal to read. So I made like five pages of notes. So at 6.02, he comes back, he enters with the key fob again, and he moves the camera in the garage again. But again, he doesn't move it far enough. At 6.31 p.m., he leaves again, goes to an ATM, and withdraws 200 bucks. At 7.14 p.m. on March 29th, James and Julie show up for the first time enter the apartment complex using the victim's other key fob. At 9.46 p.m., both James and Julie leave the apartment 
leave the apartment complex and they're gone until the next day, which is March 30th at 1.10 a.m. Then Julie and Tim return. So now they have all this information, all these pictures and stuff. They put out the press release. They start getting calls. And they see, you know, they've already seen these people drag the suitcase out and put it in the car through the, through the video. So they know the body is, is gone from there, and that's how they're able to take that, along with the other surveillance images, along with the banking records, the cell phone records, the key fobs, and all that, and narrow it down to the murder occurring on March 28th. So here's how it starts breaking down. They put out the press release. People start talking. Apparently, they handed these out far and wide, especially to the homeless community in the Orlando area. People start calling in. On, on April 7th, somebody calls in and identifies Julie Ferber. They start looking for her, they pull her booking photo, and they use that, start circulating that. They find her, one, one of the deputies finds her, and they bring her in for a formal statement. They bring her into the homicide office. She looks at the video, she identifies herself at the, at the, in the video, places herself at the scene of the crime. She asks, she's, you know, they ask her who the other people are. She waves her rights. She's talking, you know, she's telling them pretty much everything they know after a little bit of resistance. In the beginning, she denied all knowledge, but after a while, she started telling them what they wanted to know. So she says that Tim asked her to help dump a body and to move stuff out of an apartment, and he promised to pay her in drugs. So she goes with Tim, who apparently talked to James already. They go to the apartment. The reason she's carrying the bottle of perfume is because the body smells really bad. So apparently she sprays the suitcase with the perfume to try to make it not smell as bad. When they find her and bring her in, she comes in for the statement. She still had the perfume on her, the same one she had in her hand in this photo. She had this perfume bottle in her possession as well as this bag. So what did the police do? Of course, they impounded the bag. They impounded the perfume. So they have three things on Julie. They have Julie placing herself at the scene of the crime, and they have evidence of her perfume in her bag, the same bag that matches the surveillance videos. Plus, she identifies herself and admits that she's there. So she tells them Tim wants her to, to help her help him dump a body at an apartment. She agrees to it. They go over. Um, she admits to moving the body. She tells the police the body smelled rotten and she used the perfume and she drove the vehicle to the dump site. They dump the body, the three of them, they were all together, dump the body and then they go and buy drugs. And then, you know, they're off on a tangent for a while. They go to an ATM with James and he gets more money out and they go and buy drugs. So then they start <coughs> putting more of the case together. They know who Julie is. Julie gives them Tim's name. They start working on Tim and the other guy. While the police are interviewing Julie, they get a call about the black SUV, the black Escalade is found and it's on fire. It's all burned up. 
So the homicide detectives, after they finish the interview with Julie, they go out to where they found the SUV. They start doing an area canvas. An area canvas is a very basic, very productive, very important investigative step. They just go around knocking door to door, say, hey, we're the police. We're investigating this that occurred between this and this time. Did you see anything, hear anything out of the ordinary, see any people in the area, anything like that? So they get a tip from somebody who says that the people they're looking for is in a white Nissan at a pawn shop. So they go to the pawn shop looking for the white Nissan. They don't find it. It's close to the area where the BMW was found. On April 8th, somebody calls in and identifies Tim further and said Tim had Garland Ross's credit cards in his possession and they went to Metro PCS store to buy phones and to Walmart to buy stuff with the victim's credit card. On April 14th, they get Tim positively identified. They get a call about a suspicious vehicle, a suspicious vehicle. It's the white Nissan. Tim's sleeping in the white Nissan. They get him identified. They subsequently come back from their scene processing with fingerprints that identified James White, the killer. They found fingerprints inside the bedroom, uh, inside the bedroom door, and inside the front door of the apartment. They find palm prints and fingerprints which match James. They find a fingerprint inside the BMW and a right palm print also on the, in the BMW somewhere, it doesn't say where. They pull James's booking photo, they start circulating it, and they start looking for him. They get the warrant, and on April 26, 2020, James is taken into custody and charged with murder, abuse of a human, abuse of a dead human body, and tampering with physical evidence. The murder carries a no bond. The abuse of a human body carries a $5,000 bond and the tampering with physical evidence carries another $5,000 bond, uh, of which, you know, he's no bond on the murder, so it doesn't matter what the bond is on the misdemeanor charges. Doesn't matter. They hit Julie and Tim with abuse of a human, abuse of a dead human body and tampering with physical evidence. The bond was originally set at 5,000. It was subsequently lowered, I think, to like 1,000 apiece. I don't know if they bonded out or not as of now. When I checked on this case on Monday, they were still in custody. But um, James is gonna be in custody for a pretty long time. And to give you an idea how the court case is going, James was originally appointed the public defender. The public defender conflicted out because they are currently representing Julie in another felony case. His case got, James's case got sent to the Regional Conflict Council. The Conflict Council conflicted out because they represent Tim in a current felony case. So then they went to a court-appointed wheel attorney, which is a private attorney who agrees to work for a set fee on these types of cases. So James now has a public paid private attorney representing him in this case. He filed his notice of appearance, but I have not seen any other discovery reports or photographs related to the investigation that has been released to the public record as of yet. So that's where the case stands now. It's, it's interesting because it's a new case. It has similarities to 
another case that was committed in that same complex a couple years before, and it has uh, similarities to the case I did about three weeks ago involving somebody who was zipped up in a suitcase. They were alive when they were zipped in the suitcase, but they ended up dying from uh, suffocation and asphyxiation in the suitcase. Uh, in the interim, the medical examiner in this case determines that Garland was strangled to death, and uh, you know that's that's what set the the murder investigation into motion. Although officially, although I'm sure before then they knew they had a murder on their hands because they were investigating it like a murder. So that just kind of gives you an inside detail about all the hard work that they put forth in these cases and how intricate these investigations are and you know, to what extent they go to, to get information in these types of cases and, and you know, work on them constantly until they solve them. It's a very good case for investigative procedures and uh, you know, just how investigations come together and you get breaks and clues in it. The bottom line is, is you know, murder, murder is different, death is different. When you're investigating a death case, you know, you're investigating any major case, um, death, murder, course, murder is death, murder, um, sexual battery, armed robbery, stuff like that. They investigate really hard. It's a lot different than your car getting stolen or somebody stealing your bicycle. They take these cases very, very seriously. So I hope you enjoyed that case. I have a couple more cases coming up for you. I have a couple previous cases, like I said, the murder in the suitcase. I had a police shooting a couple weeks ago where a uh, cop shot a homeowner, homeowner shot the cops, and the homeowner gets uh, criminal immunity from prosecution in the case, and his, his criminal case is completely dismissed, which can't be refiled again. Um, I have a couple cases that somebody sent me, or I have one case that somebody sent me that involves a police department arresting sheriffs, and both of them getting totally out of control. And, there's video on that and everything. So I'm getting the information on that case. I got a call into the police department PIO for records on that. And then I got another case from Miami Beach that somebody just sent me today that I'm starting to investigate on, which means we'll be able to go out, we'll be able to take some scene photographs, show you what the actual scene looks like instead of pulling it up on Google. And I'll get the information on that. That case involves an international fugitive, domestic violence, murder, all kinds of craziness, stalking. It should be another good case. So if this is your thing, you like uh, you like true crime, you like to hear about homicide cases, how they're handled. I used to be a police detective in Miami-Dade County for many, many years, so I used my experience that I, I learned there to share this information with you and maybe give you some insights. And that was long before I became a lawyer, many, many years ago, but I still Know, know how to investigate a case. And I like sharing that information with you. I'm humbled you took your time out to listen to me babble about these cases. If you like what you hear, you like my content, please like and subscribe. I'll have more videos coming out. I usually have a video that comes out every Wednesday called Law and the Life Live that I try to do live. Although I've been having problems with it lately, this is the remake of this past Wednesday live. I do it every Wednesday at 6 p.m. and then I usually throw an update in there somewhere in the week. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for spending your time with me. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend. It's Friday. We made it. Let's go out and do something because South Florida is reopening after the lockdown. See you next week. Remember, Wednesday, 6 p.m., Law on the Life Live.